You can find 1 Kings 16 on page 298 in the Bible. So 1 Kings chapter 16. I'm just going to read a little bit at the end of chapter 16 to set up the context. And we're really going to focus on chapter 18. 1 Kings chapter 16, beginning my reading at verse 21. Please give your attention to the word of God. Then the people of Israel were divided into two parts. Half of the people followed Tibni, the son of Ginnath, to make him king. And half followed Amri. But the people who followed Amri overcame the people who followed Tibni, the son of Ginnath. So Tibni died. And Amri became king. In the 31st year of Asa, king of Judah, Amri began to reign over Israel. And he reigned for 12 years. Six years he reigned in Tirzah. He bought the hill of Samaria from Shemer for two talents of silver, and he fortified the hill and called the name of the city that he built Samaria, after the name of Shemer, the owner of the hill. And jumping down to verse 29. In the 38th year of Asa king of Judah, Ahab the son of Amri began to reign over Israel. And Ahab the son of Amri reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. They have the son of Amri did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ephbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And they had made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. We'll jump over to chapter 18. Now in chapter 17, God sends Elijah the prophet to say, there will be no rain or dew these years except by my word. And then Elijah disappears. So then we pick up in chapter 18. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go. Show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria. And Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. And when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. And Ahab said to Obadiah, Go through the land, to all the springs of water, and to all the valleys. Perhaps we may find grass, and save the horses and mules alive, and not lose some of the animals. So they divided the land between them to pass through it. Ahab went in one direction by himself, and Obadiah went in another direction by himself. And as Obadiah was on the way, behold, Elijah met him. And Obadiah recognized him, and fell on his face and said, Is it you, my lord Elijah? And he answered him, It is I. Go tell your Lord, Behold, Elijah is here. And he said, How have I sinned that you would give your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me? As the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my Lord is not sent to seek you. And when they would say, He's not here, he would take an oath of the kingdom or nation that they had not found you. And now you say, Go tell your Lord, Behold, Elijah is here. And as soon as I have gone from you, the Spirit of the Lord will carry you, I know not where. And so when I come and tell Ahab and he cannot find you, he will kill me. Although I, your servant, have feared the Lord for my youth. Has it not been told, my Lord, what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord? How I hid a hundred men of the Lord's prophets by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water? And now you say, go tell your Lord. Behold, Elijah's here. He'll kill me. 
Elijah said, as the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to him today. But I went to meet Ahab and told him. And Ahab went to meet Elijah. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, in your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now therefore send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. So we'll talk tonight about the theme of when the king is evil. How does God help his people when the king is evil? Now, Americans might say that's a strange topic. We can generalize and say, all right, when the government's evil, no problem. Some Americans would still say, well, that's such a strange thing for the government to be evil. And most Christians would say, that's not a strange thing at all. That's the normal condition of things. And it does mean, if I look at our own ruling class, that they have less and less to recommend them. So I think it's a timely topic. How does God help us in hard times? And the hard time is that the government is evil. In biblical idiom, when the king is evil. So I said, all right, where in the Bible should I go for this? And I said, yeah, I've got a lot of choices here. A lot of choices. We go to Daniel and his three friends dealing with the Babylonians, deal with Esther, and how she had to deal with the Persians. Because that's the second attempt at genocide of the Jewish people. The first one, you go back and deal with Moses and Pharaoh, right, kill all the baby boys, or pretty much any time in the New Testament will do. But I thought I would go to something that's more disheartening. A time when Israel was living in Israel under an Israelite king who had gone bad, who had apostatized, and had married a very determined queen. See, Israel was living a bad new day. They'd had a little summer, three kings, Saul, David, and Solomon, not always good, but the kingdom was united. They began to fight off their invaders. They began to have some unity as a country. And whether they followed the, the Lord or not, they, they did know who the Lord was. And they did know where to worship. And they built a great temple. And there was an understanding. The Lord is our God and we worship him in Jerusalem. When Solomon died, well, then the kingdom divided. And so you have the northern kingdom called Israel with ten tribes, and you have the southern kingdom called Judah with two tribes, Judah being the important one. And Israel then begins to have a very bumpy existence. You know, their first king of the new, smaller Israel, first king Jeroboam said, you know, it might not be good for me if I keep letting the people go back to Jerusalem to worship the Lord. And so Jerusalem is the capital of the other part of the former Israel. I don't want that. I need a new religious policy that will build national feeling here in Israel. And so, he said, what I need, of course, is not to try to radically do everything. So he built two golden calves, and he sent one up towards the south, and one up towards the north, and he said, look, Israel, here are your gods who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Those who are still trying to use the old history, the old identity, we are the people that the Lord brought up from, from the land of Egypt. He's going to use that, except that, of course, now we're doing it through calves. And that, of course, requires a new place of worship. 
and that will require some new priests, and that will require some new festivals. Now, Jeroboam knew better, because a prophet of the Lord had told him that he would become king over Israel. He told him that he would be king over ten tribes, and this is how it had turned out. So when he got in trouble, of course, he sent his wife on the sly to the prophet of the Lord. He knew where the real truth was to be found, but he didn't get any good news. The news was, yes, your whole family is going to be wiped out because of your sins in setting up these statues and calling that the Lord. So Jeroboam lived out his reign, but his son made two years, and then there was a rebellion, and they wiped out the whole family. And that next king, he made it some time, made it 20-some years, but when he died, his king took over, his, his son took over as king and only made it two years, and then they wiped out that whole family. The guy who wiped them out was, was I'm going to call him a colonel, the commander of half the chariots. But the head of the army said, well, if we're going to have a military coup d'etat and have a general take over, it's going to be me, not you. So that guy named Amri came up, and the colonel only had a week. And when he saw he was going to lose, he burnt down the palace around him. Notice how this sense of instability is kind of built. Except that Amri was pretty effective. He had to fight a four-year civil war before he had the whole country united. But by 880 BC or so, he had ended the instability. And then Amri and Ahab were successfully wicked. You see, Amri wins the civil war. And from extra-biblical sources, that means other ancient books or pillars or stones. We learn that Amri, Amri had some uh, military success. There's something called the Moabite Stone, which, duh, is a stone in Moab that tells you things that happened in Moab. And it records, yep, Amri defeated us. And in the Assyrian records, long after Amri and his, his whole family are gone, they're still calling Israel the house of Amri off in Assyria. So he's a pretty successful military commander. Not only that, you remember that his uh, short-lived underling, who didn't make it, had burned down the palace. So that gives you a chance for a fresh start. And so he surveyed the country. He found a hill that looked to him like a really well-defensible hill. He bought it, and then he built the capital there. And that capital stays the capital, called Samaria. In fact, the whole area then is called Samaria. In fact, when new people are brought in by the Assyrians to live there, they become known as Samaritans. In fact, in, Israel, in Israeli politics to this day, the rest of the world is calling that bit of the world the West Bank, but in, Israel, in Israeli politics, they still call it Samaria. And Jesus, of course, told a parable about a good Samaritan. So here's a guy who does some things that last. He's remembered. He builds the capital if that's remembered. And when his son reigns, his son does not does not get killed in two years. His son Ahab, he dies peacefully. He reigns for 22. So now we come to Ahab. He's in this new capital of Samaria. And it says he builds the house of Baal. That means he builds a temple to Baal in his capital city. Now we're not told that there was any temple to the Lord in the capital city. Nor really should there have been one. It belonged in Jerusalem. But notice the effect. You have a capital city. Now you've got some kings who actually can rule for a little while. And there's a temple. It's to Baal. Baal was the storm god of the surrounding countries. 
term means Lord or Master. Sort of like a Zeus, you know? Zeus is the top god of the Greek pantheon. He's got the thunderbolts. All right, so Baal's he's a different god, but it's the same kind of idea. He's the storm god. Why do you want to worship a storm god? We don't like storms. Yeah, well, we don't like storms because we're not farmers. And if you want to eat some food, somebody has to get some rain somewhere. And back then, that, mean, that, that, that meant you had to have the rain there. So the point of a storm god is, oh, Baal, give us the rain that we need so that we can eat. And since Baal is a male god in their imaginings, he's a consort, so Asher would be the female goddess of fertility. And of course, if you're going to have a temple, that means you have to have priests. So they had to import or create new priests for Baal, new feasts for Baal. You want to institutionalize this new thing to give it some lasting power. You can tell that they do that. Elijah knows it. He can name all these prophets who eat at Jezebel's table. And not only that, but Jezebel didn't leave the true worshippers of the true religion alone. She killed the prophets of Baal. So here is the bad new day. They've been idolatrous since their founding, 40 or 50 years before. But now, now they're under the thumb of a really effective military dynasty that is really imposing a lethal new paganism. So what does God do? Well, the Lord brought judgment on Israel, and bear in mind the judgment that affected everybody. Do you think you need to worship the specialist Baal that can still give you rain? Well, that Elijah will come and announce that there will be no rain, not even dew, except by his word. And then he disappears. God hides him very, very effectively. Now, at that point, I want you to understand that all of Israel, whether believing or not, wanted to find Elijah. There'll be no rain or dew unless you speak, and you're not even around. Would you get back here now? Believers and unbelievers might differ on what to do with Elijah once you found him. Believers would probably counsel a little respect. Elijah, sir, would you please pray to the Lord for rain? And the unbelievers might want to kill him. Well, that might be a bad idea. All right, you might want to torture him, something, but you want to get him to say what you needed to say. But they can agree on this. We want to find Elijah. And so we learn from Obadiah that they've been working overtime to try to find him. They're sending messengers to all the surrounding countries. Have you seen this guy? Take an oath from these countries. Really, you have to swear to Amri's son Ahab that you don't have this guy inside of your boundaries. He actually spent some time in his own country and then a little bit of time up in Tyre, but in a nobody's house in a nobody's village. Nobody knew about it. And so when we meet Ahab and Obadiah, the famine is severe. And they're going out to try to find water to save some of their animals. Because to Ahab's way of thinking, you're not going to be much of a king if you don't have some horses left. How are you going to defend the border? How are you going to put down a rebellion? Not handier to put down a good peasant rebellion if you've got horses and they don't. When you've got to walk over there, you're not much better off than they are. Now what they should do is repent to the Lord. But in Ahab's mind, that's not going to happen. So the second best thing is to find Elijah. They've been trying that. It hasn't been working. So they're down on the third option, where they're just looking for water wherever it might not have dried up yet. And the Lord has mercy. He says to Elijah, it's time to go to Ahab. Now, of course, when he has to go find Ahab, Ahab is like the one time that Ahab's hard to find. 
Normally it's pretty easy to find a king. You go to the palace and the capital. But Ahab's wandering around looking for water. So, we see that when the Lord brought mercy, his own faithful servant was afraid to believe it. I was struck by how long this account is of Elijah going and finding Obadiah first and Ahab second. It's almost as long as the following account of what happened on Mount Carmel, which is something you've heard about a whole lot more times in Sunday school than about this conversation with Obadiah. You can get impatient. Like, well, will you just shut up, Obadiah? We've got to get on the fire coming down from heaven. There's a better section coming, and you're sitting here yammering. And I think the point of having this long discussion is to show God's gentleness and care for his persecuted and afflicted people. With Obadiah, the name means servant of Yahweh. And he's over the household, which seems to mean he's the chief steward in the palace. He's in charge of making sure that the palace runs smoothly, the meals arrive on time, everyone is fed, all the servants are doing what they're supposed to do. That's at least what it means. Maybe it means chief of staff, who knows. But he's a fairly important guy, and he has access to food. But unlike Ahab's family, he fears the Lord greatly. And so what does that mean practically, if he fears the Lord greatly? Well, what it means is that when he knows that the command is to kill all the prophets of the Lord, he has somehow arranged to get 50 into this cave and 50 into this cave. And as the food comes in to feed the palace and all the food that's going to be required for that, somehow he's got some way arranged that some of that food just gets funneled off to this cave and funneled off to that cave. Probably not the good stuff. It says bread and water because, you know, probably counting the oysters are all the nice things. But he's getting the bread and water off to these caves. Notice he didn't say, I can't do it. It would risk my job. He's risking more than his job. He doesn't say, I can't do it because it would risk my life. It is risking his life. But he's doing it anyway because he fears the Lord's faith. He doesn't say, well, I can't do it because Ahab would kill my whole family. He might well. But he fears the Lord greatly. And so what that means in practical terms is that he's prepared to be the hero on the quiet, risking his life, probably his family's life, to divert some of the food that is meant for the king's household, and he sends it off to keep these prophets alive. He did not act like the local Christian adoption agency, that when told that they would have to help gay and lesbian couples adopt, said, oh, okay, if that's what we have to do, that's what we have to do. No, he acted more like Catholic social services that said, we're not doing it and we'll see you in court. And took it to the Supreme Court and won by the way. Now, if you want to say, well, why didn't he just quit his job? That is an extraordinarily naive modern American question. Somebody in the White House can go and say, Mr. Biden, sir, it's been wonderful, but I need more time for my family. I'm moving back to Tennessee, and I'm going to go back to my old law firm in Nashville. And then you can do that, and that's fine. But Ahab would say, wait, you're not going to be over my household anymore? And why is that? And you say, well, um, my family, you say, no, um, your family can move here. What's the real reason, dude? It's an act of disloyalty 
to just walk away from the job. And if he walks away from the job, he can't keep his under profit for a lot of reasons. Yeah, for him to quit, the next move, he'd have to quit by night and flee by exile with his whole family out of the country. So he stays put. And he serves in fear. And he goes out. He's serving Ahab. Ahab says, I'm going this way, looking for water. You go that way. And Elijah runs into Obadiah. And Obadiah recognizes him. Because even if they only met Elijah once, he made a memorable impression. He speaks respectfully. Is it you, my lord, Elijah? Elijah says, it's me. Why don't you go see your lord, Ahab? Jabbing him back about who he actually serves. And then Obadiah flips out. And I read it this way to convey that we have a six-verse rant. And it's preserved for us, again, to show God's care for his persecuted ones in their trials and fears. How did I sin that you want to kill me? By Ahab. You see, he lives in fear of being killed by Ahab. With good reason, because Ahab kills people. Ahab does and Jezebel does. And he's doing things that are exactly against policy. Policy is kill the prophets of the Lord and he's keeping them alive. So he lives in fear of being killed by Ahab. And he says, how have I sinned? You can imagine that that might actually be sort of a live question. The judgment of the Lord is coming down on Israel. Believers are seeing their animals die, maybe their children, the same as the unbelievers are. Only the unbelievers are still reigning. And so the believers are probably saying, why does it go on so? Perhaps they're saying, perhaps this is God's judgment on our sins. But maybe they don't know what they are. But he has this further reason to flip out. Do you know how hard we've been trying to find you? And being in the palace, he knows the lengths that they've been going in their foreign relations, their foreign policy, their ambassadors. And I've all been instructed to try to take an oath of all these countries to ensure that, in fact, they don't have Elijah. And so he says, so you want me, who actually hid prophets, to be the guy who, hey, presto, I found the prophet. How does that seem like a good idea to you, Elijah? Don't you know that he probably already has some suspicions? Don't you know that this just puts a spotlight on me? I'll probably have to be followed by his Gestapo, and they'll find those prophets and kill them and me. I am the worst person to have, go tell Ahab that you're here. Understand his reaction. Now you notice how he does lose some perspective. Hasn't it been told you what I did? Well, no, because Elijah's been living under a rock in another country. Right? Who would have told him? Okay. Hasn't it been told, my Lord? Well, if it was widely known, it wouldn't be happening anymore and you'd be dead over that. Right? You're actually doing a pretty good job of keeping it quiet. So he loses some perspective. Elijah doesn't know. At least he can't assume that he knows. So notice that suffering and fear will tend to turn you inwards to focus on yourself. Take care of that. That is the natural order of things. When you're living in fear, you're thinking about yourself. Try to resist that as much as you can. And notice how the Lord's prophet reassured God's frightened servant. Notice here, he takes an oath. We talked about vows this morning. Oaths and vows are very similar. Pretty much the same thing. He says, As the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand. That's an oath. 
He's putting his hand on the Bible, this is the equivalent, and swearing in God's name that he will do this thing. And you shouldn't normally do that. Am I going to see you tomorrow, Durin? Durin should say, uh, yeah, and just leave it at that. Okay. Generally, no reason to be swearing an oath about that. But here's the reason why. Obadiah is terrified. Obadiah needs to be reassured. And Elijah knows that this is in line with God's call on his life because God has said to Elijah, go show yourself to Ahab. So when he swears, I will show myself to Ahab, he knows that that's walking in the Lord's will for his life. So he knows it's God's calling. And he sees the need. Because for some reason he thinks Obadiah should go do this. Maybe Obadiah, Obadiah has a better idea of where to go. So this is the kind of occasion those rare occasions when you might reverently take an oath to give assurance when there's need, a real genuine need to give this kind of serious assurance on something where you know that you're going to be able to follow through. And of course then we see how Obadiah goes. You want to know, well, why did God send Obadiah? Perhaps it was this. God wanted to show Ahab, when you want the truth, when you want success, come to my faithful ones. Come to someone whose name means servant of Yahweh, not servant of Baal. Go to someone who you kind of suspect still really reveres the, the God of Israel. That's the guy who gives you success. That's the guy who can bring you to Elijah. What do I take away from Elijah and Obadiah? I want to understand that a wicked government can instill fear, especially when it's thorough and determined. You should not underestimate the need for courage and faith and for reliance on God. You should know there have been a lot of wicked governments that have sought to eliminate the church. They've killed and jailed and tortured. Of course, that brings over all the unbelievers to their side. It brings over all the frightened to their side can bring over the lukewarm to their side. Bring over the cowardly to their side. Bring over the ambitious to their side. And with each defection, of course, the believers seem more discouraged and more isolated. You see that a wicked government instills fear. Also see that when God brings judgment on a nation, it, it hits the believers in the nation too. And remember, the first few plagues hit everybody in Egypt. Only the subsequent plagues that don't. And that's a little unusual. Usually when God brings judgment on a country, if you're in the country, you suffer with it. That's why it's good to confess the sins of your nation, even the sins that you and yours may have stood aloof from. In our covenant of 1871, our denomination confessed the sins of the nation, sins against the aboriginal and the colored populations, even though we'd stood aloof from slavery. But we didn't confess their sins. We confessed the sins of our nation. Because it's our nation. We're part of it. And we see that God will preserve his church. Some will survive. Now I say some. We don't know how many prophets Jezebel caught. We only know that she was maintaining 850. And that 100 of the lords were saved. We don't know how many hundreds she caught you'd expect that she probably caught most of them. 
As our confession says, the Lord will always have a church for himself on the earth. And we should see that it's a hard thing to be persecuted. You can see that with Obadiah. He's hanging on. He's a hero. But he's a little fragile. He's a little touchy. It's a difficult thing to be persecuted. And while we can, we serve the Lord in the place where we're at. And there's a time to flee. Obadiah knew he was going to be arrested that night. Now it's time to flee. As long as he was able to serve the Lord there, he stayed and he did. And the Lord, in fact, requires this additional step of him. Go and tell Ahab. You have no worse choice. Now you're God's choice. And the Lord is patient to hear and to record and to give reassurance to his faithful ones. As the Lord lives, it will happen today. When he requires much of us, let us look also to him for strength and ask him to supply the strength to do the things that he's requiring us to do. And above all, we're never to deny the Lord Jesus Christ. We're to die rather than deny the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice how Obadiah is described. He's not described as that he loved the Lord greatly, although he could say that. He doesn't say that he believed in the Lord greatly, though he did. It says that he feared the Lord greatly. That's why he hid the prophets. And that's why we said this morning, the fear of the Lord must not be damaged. We must maintain that holy fear and make it our great fear. And Lord Jesus says the same thing. He says, do not fear those who kill the body and then they're done. Rather, kill the, fear him who can kill, can cast both body and soul into hell. Fear him, he says. So where do you fear the Lord? Not Ahab and Jezebel when they rule. I to fear the Lord and know that he set his son, Jesus Christ, to reign in heaven. And that Jesus reigns over all things for the good of his church. And so the church has grown and is all over the world, despite the efforts of many to stamp it out. And so let us be firm in this and keep our eyes fixed firmly on Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray. Let me thank you for your martyrs who have gone to the death rather than deny you. And we pray, Lord, that you would also give us courage, that we would meet whatever challenges come our way. We thank you for your care for your people and your care for Obadiah, that you record his concerns and that you record that you answered them and you preserved him. Lord, we pray that we would not be cowardly or ambitious, ambitious in this world. Help us, Lord, to fix our eyes on you and to serve you in the way that you call us to. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.